Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. I've got great news for you. And just celebrate with me because I'm hype. I am done with grand jury duty. It's over. It's over. Thank you for your grace and your patience. The past three months as I've had to shift meetings and not be as available. Guys, I love Boston. I was happy to serve in that way for justice, but I am very extra glad to be over with that. Again, thank you, church, for your love and your grace. Um, Also want to make an announcement that today is a special family worship Sunday. Not where we worship families, but we have our families join us in worship. So you'll notice very beautiful, cute kid noises. That is a good sound. Anytime you hear children in church, you know that God is blessing and growing and caring for families. And so we've got my kids in service. So if you hear a little bit of noise over here or over here, that's a fine thing. Smile when you hear the noise and say, I'm so glad those kids are here that they get to learn about Christ as well. All right, with that said, guys, um, we've been journeying through Genesis. And this week we come to chapter thirty. Five. And we've been studying this figure for a while, and his name is Jacob. And Jacob has these seasons of ups and downs in his relationship with God. Anyone else kind of relate to that? Highs and lows with God? Absolutely. Jacob is that guy. Well, unfortunately, this week we see Jacob drift. It's a common experience that if you've been a Christian for a while, you've experienced this, where you are drifting in your relationship with God. And so today I want to give you some anchors to help you not drift in your relationship with God. So if you're taking notes, here's what we're titling today. How to avoid the danger of drifting. And I'm going to give you five ways you can anchor yourself in Christ. So let me start this way. Um, Growing up, my friend Matthew invited me on his uh, family vacation. Uh, We were good buddies. We were classmates and we did some sports together. And his family was going to the beach. And he's like, Aaron, do you want to come with my family? I asked my mom and dad, and they were like, yeah, let's go. He's got four other siblings in this family. So there's kids all over the beach. We're hanging out. And one of the days we were there, a big storm kind of popped up on the beach. And his brother invited a friend as well. His brother invited a friend, and they had rented this sort of sea kayak. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's a little bigger of a kayak boat, and they're able to take it over the waves. Well, this storm is coming. Um, It's beginning to rain. Uh, People are kind of going back off the beaches to their place and they're still out on this beach kayak or the sea kayak. And with the waves moving and the currents picking up and you're watching them drift closer and closer to the pier. And so Matthew's mom's calling out, we're calling out to them, hey guys, come on in. And they're trying to paddle against the drift, against the current, and they keep getting closer and closer to the pier. Well, unfortunately, about five, 10 minutes pass along and these guys actually get underneath the pier and they're kind of banging up against the pier pillars. They're kind of smashing their heads and their arms. They lose their paddle. And unfortunately at that time, one of the beach lifeguards had to take a jet ski and go out and help bring them in. So by the time they get in, there's a little bit of a crowd and you see an ambulance that's out there. The beach medics are there and they're helping to care for Matthew's brother and their friend. And I'll never forget what they had shared with them because it relates to today's passage. And here's what the medic said. He said, guys, you've got to pay better attention to the current so that you don't drift into danger. 
And unfortunately, church, that's exactly what's happening in Jacob's life in these past few chapters. We see guys like us, Jacob has spiritually drifted away from God. The current of Jacob's sinful desires have led him and his family away into chaos and heartache. So church, my goal today with today's message is for you to see five ways that you can anchor yourself in Christ so that you and I can avoid drifting away from God. Does that sound good? Pretty simple way, right? These five anchors, if you're taking notes, which I always encourage in our church because I'm not the best preacher, but all the notes are from the Bible. And that's what I wanna teach you is God's word. So here's the anchors you're gonna see. We've gotta anchor ourselves in God's word, God's love, God's godly repentance, God's promise, and God's strength when Satan schemes. So let's start unpacking the first one, guys. As we look at the details around what's going on with Jacob and his drift. Like what are the circumstances around him drifting away from God? So guys, as you remember, uh, Jacob is the historical character that we've been studying the past several weeks. Kyle, our ministry associate, has done a great job teaching on Jacob. Brandon, one of our pastoral track candidates alongside of Kyle, has done a great job. We've been looking at him and Jacob is an odd character, has these highs and low moments. Let me share a few of those guys. In chapter 32, we saw Jacob have this incredible encounter with God. Do you remember that? One where he personally wrestles with God Almighty. Brandon preached that Sunday. It was a phenomenal message. And that chapter showed us that God's desire is to have a close and personal relationship with him. One where we seek to wrestle against our sinfulness and we wrestle for personal closeness with God. Because up until that point in chapter 32, Jacob's life has been filled with what, guys? Selfishness, deception, and it's brought so much hurt on his family and himself. Jacob, up until chapter 32, has drifted away from the faith of his father Isaac and the faith of his grandfather Abraham. But it's through this wrestling encounter that God brings Jacob back to himself. And then what's God do? God gives him a new name. In that chapter, he's no longer called Jacob the cheat, but he's Israel the what? The beloved, the one whom God personally wrestled back to himself. Then moving on to chapter 33, we see Jacob pursue reconciliation with his brother Esau. Because at that point of his life, guys, it had been 20 years since Jacob had even seen or even talked to Esau. Because if you remember, Jacob fled to Paran Aram after stealing his brother's birthright and his blessing. So after 20 long years, the brothers finally meet up and Esau forgives Jacob for all that he's done and they're reconciled. But then here's what I wanna draw your attention to today. Something interesting happens at the very end of chapter 33. In verse 19, we see that Jacob buys a plot of land, but that land is not in the land of Beersheba, where God had commanded him to go when he left Laban in chapter 31. No, he buys land where? In Shechem, the very land in chapter 34, where his daughter is abused and his sons are provoked to murder. And it's in this that we see that Jacob has drifted from God's word, 
God's command to go back to Beersheba, but he stops short of God's word and ends up in Shechem. And this drift from God's word, he ends up in Shechem for 10 long, devastating years. He's drifted again, and that leads to devastation in his life. Where God was seeking to protect Jacob and his family from Shechem, Jacob ignored God's word to him. So church, let me say that another way. Church, you and I, let's not settle for Shechem when God's best is in Beersheba. Come on, church, that'll preach a little bit. Come on, right? Don't settle for Shechem. That's exactly what we're learning. Let's not turn away from God's word when he knows what's best for our futures, what's best for our flourishing. Like Jacob, let's not drift into thinking we know what's best for our lives and our futures. Jacob's drift from God's best, which was at Beersheba, and he gets God's worst when he settles for less in Shechem. Church, let's not do the same thing. We've got a number one, here's the point, we've got to anchor ourselves in God's word. Y'all, I'm giving you a point in the setup of the sermon. We ain't even in the text yet. I'll give you some background points before we get into this. You're watching the drift. Guys, we can't just do these two things. We can't just follow our hearts or trust our guts. Because Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse nine of his book, he says, the heart is what? It's deceitful above all things. Our hearts are desperately sick. Who can truly understand it, he says. Our desires are not matched up with God's desires. We don't know what's best for us because we can't know the future. Or finally, you may not like Jeremiah, but you gotta hear Jesus out. From Mark chapter seven, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says this, for from within, out of the heart of mankind, come these things, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within the heart and that's what defiles a person. Church, we can't trust our gut. We've got to trust God's word. From his word, it points us to what's best in Beersheba so that we don't settle in Shechem. We don't spend 10 years drifting away from God's best like Jacob. Psalm 19 says it like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord, it's pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they, the Bible, the scriptures, are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter are God's word, more than honey drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, God's word is given to us to warn us. And check this out, in keeping God's word, there is great reward. Guys, the way to keep you anchored from drifting away into danger, getting beat up near the pier, is that we can anchor ourselves in God's word. When God says we are to go and live and aim at these things, we're to trust him or we drift into Shechem. 
Quick application points. We say these often, but there's been several new folks that have come and visit our church. So let me give you this application. What do we do with God's word? It's cheesy. Here's your Dr. Seuss moment. You read God's word, you heed God's word, you feed God's word to each other. Super simple, amen? You read God's word daily. You heed God's word hourly. Every hour of your life, you're heeding it. You're trying to obey. And then you feed God's word to others, meaning the gathering of the believers is important for Sunday for us to be here or be online if we're out of town for some reason. It's for you to be in community groups or DNA groups. Maybe you do a Bible study with your spouse or your roommates. We've got to read God's word, heed God's word, and then we feed God's word to others. That's one way to keep you from drifting into danger. It's number one, anchoring yourself in God's word. Here's the second one. You can avoid the drift by anchoring yourself in God's love. God's word was one, God's love is two. Now here's where we finally jump into today's passage, okay? You guys ready? Let's start in verse one. It says this. So God said to Jacob, he says, arise, because where's he at? He's in Shechem, right? God says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now that's interesting, guys. Why does God tell him to arise and go to Bethel and not Beersheba? Didn't God tell him earlier to go to Beersheba? Why is God now telling him to arise and go to Bethel? Like, wasn't that the problem in the first place that Jacob wasn't at Beersheba? So why then is God redirecting Jacob to Bethel? Well, here's why. Because Bethel was the place where Jacob first met God and experienced his love and his truth and his grace. And so what's God doing? God is bringing Jacob back to that place to remind him of God's love and God's truth and God's grace. See, because it was in Bethel back in chapter 28 that Jacob hit rock bottom. Do you guys remember that? The dude's fleeing for his life because his brother wanted to kill him after stealing his brother's birthright and his blessing. So you got the dude, his brother hated him. His dad didn't really love him because his dad favored Esau, not Jacob. And his mom was like, Jacob, you got to get out of here. You got to leave. So the dude finds himself alone in the desert in the middle of the night, sleeping on a what? A rock. The dude literally hits rock bottom, in the desert. And do you remember what happens next from chapter 28? It was in this very place of desperation that God met him with God's love, truth, and compassion. And now in chapter 35, God is bringing him back to that very spot to remind him that God still loves him. God is still gracious and God is still truthful. Guys, do you see what God is doing here? Is it clear? God is swimming out past the pier, per se, over the waves, through the storm, and he's rescuing Jacob from the disastrous drift of his life. God is anchoring Jacob to his love and reminding him how good and how gracious and how loving he is. God is bringing him back to Bethel to build an altar to God so that Jacob can be reminded and anchored again to the God who still loves him when he hits rock bottom. Church, this passage is really for all of us. 
It's for each of you guys. Each of us in this room online, each of us guys have drifted this week. You've drifted from God this month, this year in various ways, guys. We've drifted with our sexuality and how we seek pleasure. We drifted with our finances. We either hoard too much to ourselves and we don't give generously to others or we overspend on ourselves, and we don't have any to give to others. We look at our time and our resources and our life and we use it to serve self and not please God and, and, and others. Rather than using our lips to speak blessing and love and truth to others, we use our lips to be harsh and critical and judgmental to others. Many of us, guys, we, we've drifted. When's the last time that you have taken time with God in like deep prayer and reading his word? Like when's the last time? Think about how you cope. How do you cope with life struggles? Listen, I know a thing or two about struggling with coping with grand jury duty the past three months, trying to navigate this full-time job and try to love my family well and then navigate that full-time job. And how are we coping? Are we just numbing out, scrolling endlessly? Are we just hoping for that next vacation? Are we like, man, I got to buy this thing more for myself to use the excitement of that new purchase? Are we numbing ourselves with alcohol? Knowing that we maybe could have had one drink, but we end up doing two or three or four or five or six. What are you doing behind doors with that person you're in a dating relationship with? With your phone, with that computer? How long are we surfing Netflix? Guys, how far have we drifted? And guys, this passage is reminding us that no matter what Shechem of sin you find yourself in, God brings you back to Bethel to remind you, God didn't love you for what you did or didn't do. He loves you because of who he is as a good father, amen? He brings you back to Bethel. Bethel? He could, he could, but he brings you back to Bethel to remind you at your rock bottom, no matter where you've drifted, you might have not been to church in weeks, months, years. You might not have prayed. I don't know what your life looked like, but no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, God calls out to you in this chapter and says, hey, I know you're in Shechem. You're not in the place that you wanna be. You're not in the place that I want you to be. But God calls out to you in Shechem and says, let me bring you back to Bethel. Let me remind you of where I met you first. Let me remind you at the cross that nothing that you've done can keep you far from me. I died in your place, forgiving you of your sin so that you can have a place to me. Will you return to Bethel, church? Will you walk away from Shechem and trust God and go to Bethel? In fact, if you remember at Bethel, God gives them that beautiful imagery, that dream. Do you remember that dream of Jacob's ladder? That ladder points us to the fact that God one day would descend from heaven in human flesh in order to ascend the cross in our place so that our sin could descend into the grave so that we could ascend with Christ in his resurrection in heaven one day. Amen. In Shechem, God is pointing to this moment in Bethel where there's a ladder that no matter how deep the pit is, God will descend the ladder into your pit, into your sin, no matter what you've done, put you on his back and carry you up the ladder of grace, truth, and compassion. Church, return to Bethel, no matter where you've drifted. 
anchor yourself in God's love because it's available to all. Amen? I missed the point. Let me just throw it on the screen. Kyle, this is not how you do it, buddy. I forgot it. Ran past my notes, but here you go. Two things I want you to anchor in God's love about is that God is forgiving, but God also can fulfill you. God can forgive you of your sin, but also the reason probably why you went to that thing in sin is because you were looking for something that only God himself can provide. So God's love is not just about forgiving you, but it's actually fulfilling you so you don't return to that sin again. You don't look to that place to cope anymore because in God, you find someone that deeply knows you, understands your circumstances, loves you deeply, has a hope and a plan and a purpose for you. And no one else, no one else will love you enough to die for you. And so therefore he's the only one that you should live for. This is the type of love that you should anchor yourself in, a God who's forgiving and a God who can fulfill you. Amen? Uh, Number three, guys, to avoid spiritual drift, which all of us are gonna face, we've got to anchor ourselves in godly repentance. Godly repentance. Now, I understand when I say that word repentance, y'all are like, bro, it's 2023. You can't drop these ancient terms on us. Guys, when the modern hearer hears repentance, it seems like old and out of date at best, but then it also seems intolerant and bigoted at worst, right? That word repentance. However, repentance in a biblical sense isn't just some legalistic word that means to stop irreligious actions and then start doing religious actions. Repentance means to agree with God about his laws for human flourishing and goodness. And then it's about you trusting in God's goodness enough that you follow his ways when they're contrary to your ways. That's what repentance is. It's really about trust. Who knows what's best for you? Who wants what's best for you? And you've got a heavenly father that has a set of ways not to harm you, not to keep you from pleasure or enjoyment, but to ensure that you have joy and abundance of life. The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10, but Jesus came to give life abundantly. Life meaning Zoe, meaning fullness of vitality, joy in him. This is what God is wanting for us, for you. So therefore, repentance means I've got to turn away from anything else that says it knows what's best and what's good for me. I've got to turn from that, not in some religious sense, but relational sense. God, I'm going to trust you. I know your ways are right. Even if they're contrary to what I want for my body, for my mind, for my future, for my finances, even if I feel this way, I'm going to trust your way. That's what we see here next in this passage. It's what God calls Jacob to do and what he's calling you to do. It's godly repentance. See what I mean in verse two. And by the way, we're gonna move a little bit faster. We just hit up like one verse so far. We're gonna go a little bit quicker through this because we gotta get out at some point today, especially since it's family worship Sunday, right? All the kids. And all God's people said, amen. All right, here we go. Verse two, Jacob said to his whole household and to all that were with them, there's probably hundreds of people now, as their family has grown, he says this. He says, guys, we've got to put away, put away the foreign gods that are among you. You got to purify yourself. He says, change your garments. Then let us arise and we're going to go to Bethel together so that I may make an altar to that God 
who answers me in the day of my distress. I love that. And that God has been with me wherever I have gone. So what they do, they repented. They gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them, or better stated, if you're studying the original language, he buried them under the tree that was near Shechem. Guys, in that passage, we see four steps of repentance that Jacob and his family takes to go away from their drifting and back to God. They get rid of their foreign gods. They purify their hearts, asking for God's forgiveness. They change their clothes and saying, God, this is an outward sign of an inward reality. I'm gonna change my ways. And then they're gonna follow God to Bethel. Guys, Thomas Watson was a kind of old school guy, Puritan, and he wrote about repentance of sin. And he says this, repentance is a spiritual medicine that's made up of six ingredients. Let me just drop you on these real quick. Six ingredients to help us truly turn away from things that will harm us to things that God wants to help us. Here are those six things. It's when we recognize our sin, our shortcomings, And then number two, we have a sorrow for that sin because it not just was some irreligious thing we did wrong, we have a sorrow because it broke some fellowship with God. And it hurt this relational connection we have with him. We don't find a joy in that sin any longer. And that thing that we thought would bring us pleasure has only brought us pain. And so we feel this sense of sorrow, that this emptiness when we drank so much, we lived this way with our sexuality, whatever we did with our mouth verbally, we thought it would bring pleasure or joy and it brought pain. So we recognize sin, but we see a sorrow for sin. And then we confess sin. Number three, confession is, yes, God, I acknowledge that this was wrong and therefore I need your forgiveness. I, I need a change. Then four, we have a shame for sin. And this is not just like, oh, shame on you, bad thing. But there's a shame of like, I don't even want to be associated with this thing anymore. And then there's this hatred for that sin saying, I'm not going to go here anymore. I hate this thing because it hurts my walk with God. It hurts my joy. It brings displeasure to this God that I love. I, I hate that. And then number six, it's turning from that sin. And just to be honest with you, that's the hardest step for all of us is actually turning from that sin. And I don't think you're actually gonna turn from sin unless you hate that sin. And so part of our prayer often, Christian, should be, God, help me to love you so much that I hate my sin. Help me to hate my sin so much that I love you as my savior. And in this story, we see Jacob take that last step seriously. He turns from his sin. He leads his family to turn from his sin. He actually turns from Shechem and he goes to Bethel. And in Bethel, he does what? He buries those foreign gods. Now, did you wonder like I did when I read that, like, where did those foreign gods come from? Like, what happened there? If you like back it up a little bit, you remember that Rachel was irritated at Laban and she stole the foreign idols from his house, brought it on the donkey or brought it on a camel when they were like running away from Laban. So she was sort of sneaking in these sin idols just to retaliate against Laban. But then their family started to like worship these things. Notice how sin just creeps in. Notice how these kind of idols in our life kind of creep in. 
Maybe you thought that you were just gonna live like this for a little while. Like, Rachel, I'm just gonna have these idols to get back at someone. I'm just gonna take this drink. I'm gonna live this way for just a little bit. And then I'm gonna get back on the saddle. Sin just creeps in. And now the whole family has been worshiping these multiple gods. Sin is creeping in to get tolerated. And so what we're learning here is that there's this active resistance against idolatry in this passage. That Jacob's saying, guys, take all of those false idols and we're gonna bury them. And guys, to be honest with you, I I think there's probably a few idols that our church deals with that we need to bury at Shechem. We need to bury. I think one thing we really need to work on in our church is how much just screen time we use. The drift often happens when you and I are just scrolling endlessly through our phone. It could be social media, it could be the news, it could be Facebook. And by the end, you feel more empty than you did when you first started and why you looked at it anyway. You're done comparing your life to someone, some news thing out made you outrageous and made you mad. You're just scrolling through it. You've got to bury how much time you're spending on your phone. Another thing, guys, we, we've got to balance properly work and school. It's good to work hard. It's good to have a great education, but we cannot make that an idol. Be our everything, be our status. We've got to bury that desire that's tucked into work and school at times. We talk about often that sometimes even dating itself, we know it's not bad, but it might be an idol. I have to be in a relationship. I have to find a spouse. If I'm not dating or I got rejected on a dating app, I feel crushed. If we see someone else in our church get engaged, we're kind of excited for a moment, but then we're like, what about me? And there's this deep emptiness. And yes, there's a longing for marriage that's good and right. But if it's elevated so much that we say, I have to have this to be happy rather than I have to have God to be happy, that we've got something out of order. And it's in Shechem before he leaves to Bethel that they've got to bury some idols. So church, let me ask you, where do you need to bury some idols? What is causing you to drift? Is it in your pocket? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your heart? Is it in your lips, your tongue? What do you need to bury? What has elevated itself so much so that you're willing to drift away from God that you need to bury, to active, take step six, take active steps away to bury. And we see that the beauty of the gospel is that God ultimately buried our sin in the cross, in the grave. So it has no more power and we can walk away. So let's take that resurrection power, bury our sin and walk away from Shechem. God calls Jacob out in order to call him into a better place, calls him into Bethel. And at Bethel, God restores him through Jacob's repentance. Let me show you what I mean, verse nine. God restores him through repentance. So God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Basically he's like, bro, you've been living like Jacob. Stop living like Jacob because you're Israel now. You've been given a new identity. You're forgiven, you're loved, and you can be fulfilled in me. So God called his name Israel, the one who wrestles with God. God wrestled him back to himself. Verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, which by the way, do you remember that Jacob was like, what's your name? Who are you? And God doesn't answer. He answers here. He says, the one you've been looking for, it's not in Shechem. It's not in your idols. The one who you're really desiring has been me all along. I am the God 
Almighty, he says. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. He's talking about a blessing. And kings shall come from your own body. Verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and your dad Isaac, I'm gonna give now to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you, pointing to a Messiah one day that would come and die for the sins of the world. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him and a pillar of stone. He put out a drink offering over it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. We see a beautiful picture of repentance that happens. Jacob truly turns from his sin. God rescues him out to sea and brings him back. Repentance is Jacob turning from his old ways and turning to his new ways as Israel. God has forgiven him. God has filled him and God's refocusing on him on God's ways. God restored him through repentance. And church, do you need to be restored through your repentance? Are you so far drifted that you just feel cold? You feel numb? Like, how are you in this relationship, this journey with God? Have you been so far that you forget what it feels like to have affection for him? Return to Bethel and have godly repentance. Number four, you guys doing okay? A couple quick ones left here. To avoid the drift, you must anchor yourself in God's promises. Now, if you've been journeying through Genesis, you've heard this one about 1,348 times. Here's 49, okay? There's a lot here. To avoid the drift, you must anchor yourself in God's promises. Now notice, God says, Jacob, you need to go back to Bethel. But it's in this moment that there's been a situation in Shechem. And Jacob's like, I don't know if I'm gonna like come out unscathed here. Because if you remember in chapter 34, all the brothers had gone and committed mass murder around Jacob's land. And if Jacob's gonna travel into this other land, he's gotta travel past everyone of the family of people that his sons just murdered. So the very end of chapter 34, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, he's like, guys, you've brought trouble on me and you have made me a stink to all the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, he says. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So Jacob's like, dude, I don't even know how we're gonna get back to Bethel. How am I gonna obey God and get back to Bethel because you just murdered everybody and you've made it terrible for me. I might be attacked and taken here. Well, here's the beauty of what happens. Jacob trusts God's promises. He re-anchors him to God's promises. The promise in Genesis 28 that God gave. This is what God said to him in several chapters earlier. He said, behold, I am with you, verse 15. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And you will, and I will bring you back to this land, to Bethel for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. So what does Jacob do? In this moment of fear and uncertainty, he says, I don't know what the future's like. I don't know what's gonna end up for me, but I'm gonna anchor myself in this promise. You told me you're gonna be with me and you'll bring me back to Bethel. So even though circumstances look crazy, I don't know if I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna trust you. So what does Jacob do? He goes back, verse five. Genesis 35, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not take pursuit of the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. He made it. It's in the land of Canaan. He and all his people with them, they made it safely. And there he built an altar to the place of El Bethel because there God had revealed himself when he had fled from his brother. 
Do you see what happened there? He anchored himself in God's promise. You're gonna make it to Bethel no matter what happens here. You're gonna make it. And church, that's exactly what's gonna happen to us. We've got to anchor ourselves in God's promises. I always try to give you a few promises to hang on to. Let me give you a few you can put in your pocket. God's provision promised to you from Philippians 4.19. God says, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God promises you his protection, Romans 8.28. And we know, we say this often, that for those who love God, all things work together for your good. For those who are called according to your purpose, God, it's his protection. He will use all things and work it for good. We also see Genesis 50.20, that what was meant as evil against me, God can make for your good. He's protecting you that even evil can be worked out for your good. God's protection seen in Psalm 23, six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We see God's protection in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. And here's the protection and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We've got to anchor ourselves in these moments of uncertainty and fear that Jacob had. And we've got to remember what God's word says, no matter what happens to me, no matter what circumstance, no matter what hardship, God will use it for my good. We also see God's promise of his presence here. Hebrews 13, five and six, God says to you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Deuteronomy 31, six, here's the promise of God's presence again. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, do not be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Church, when you feel like you're in a drift and you're like, God doesn't care about me. Look at my life, look at my circumstances. And that's proof that God doesn't love me. Anchor yourself in God's promises. His promise of provision, protection, and presence. And that's exactly what Jacob does. He goes back chapter 28 in his heart. He says, God, you told me that you're gonna be with me, that I will make it back to Bethel. So I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna go. Church, let us do the same. When life looks terrible and you wonder, God, why did you let this happen to me? I thought you loved me. Anchor yourself in the promise and not the circumstance. And God, watch God work in that circumstance through his promise. Last thing here, last thing. You guys ready? This is an interesting point in my opinion because Everything hits the fan. Every Shechem thing hits the fan, for lack of better terms here. And point five, to avoid the drift, here's what's gonna happen. You must anchor yourself in God's strength when Satan schemes against you. Guys, the very end of this chapter doesn't end all pretty like I thought it would. At first, it seems like, oh, there's a nice little bow here. Jacob returns to his faith. God forgives him. God points him to the cross, reminds him of the ladder, that Jesus would come and die one day for his sin. But then everything hits the fan. Guys, like five terrible and challenging things happen to Jacob right after he returns to his faith in God. Isn't it interesting how that's the case in your life as well? Like when you're like trying to follow God, everything blows up in your life. Like when you're trying to follow, you're trying to obey, everything just gets harder for you. And here's why. The closer we try to walk with God, the harder the enemy tries to cause you to drift away from him. Do you see that in your life? The closer you try to walk with God, the harder the enemy tries to cause you to walk away from him. And if you're sitting here thinking like, that doesn't happen to me, then guess who already has you? Guess what the enemy's already done? He might already have you on a drift. 
if you're like, I don't feel like things are that rough or that, that bad, or I don't feel like I'm that challenged, then you might be far out to sea. You're already past the waves. Things already got rough for you. Guys, the next section of verses reveal a series of five awful things that happened to Jacob. And so in this moment, Jacob's got to choose. Am I going to anchor myself in God's strength? Or am I just going to let myself be drifted out by Satan's schemes to cause me to go away from God? Let me show what I mean here. Guys, the first thing in verse eight, Deborah, which is Jacob's traveling nurse that his mom, Rebecca, like gave to Jacob when he was leaving, she dies, Deborah dies. It says in verse eight that she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So just when he gets his life right with God, the traveling nurse, Deborah, dies. The second thing in verse 16 through 19, Rachel, Jacob's wife, dies. Like this is like back to back and she dies in childbirth. It says in verse 18, and Rachel's soul was departing from her in this childbirth for she was dying. So she called her son's name that she was giving birth to, Ben-Anoi, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob renames his son and says, I'm gonna call you Benjamin, meaning son of my strength. And I saw a little fist pump there, amen. Son of my strength. So Rachel died in verse 19 and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Guys, it's interesting that Jacob in this moment has the nurse die and his wife dies, but notice how he named his son. He named his son Benjamin, the son of my strength. He didn't let his circumstance knock him off his faith. He said, God, I'm going to anchor myself in your promises. You tell me that all things will work out for my good. So this son is not going to be my sorrow. This son will be my strength. You will use this for good in my life. Church, I wish we could be the same way. I wish we could be the same way. We look at our circumstances and draw strength, knowing that God will work in the midst of it. But it doesn't end there. It gets worse. When Jacob's down and out, lost the nurse, lost his wife, Reuben, his son, commits adultery with another of Jacob's wife. This is super wild family feud going on here. Verse 22, when Israel lived in that land, Reuben, his son, went to lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel then later heard of it. We think things get worse. They do. We see number four, Isaac, who is Jacob's dad, dies. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father at Mamre, which is at Hebron, when Abraham and Isaac had sojourned there. Verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 128 years and then Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. So then now his dad dies. Deborah dies, Rachel dies. His son commits adultery against his other wife with, with his other wife. And then Isaac, his father dies. And then on top of all of it, the fifth thing, Esau, Jacob's brother, where they've had conflict all these years, they had a moment of reconciliation. Jacob's brother, Esau, ends up having a family line that is so much bigger. It's so much better. It's so more successful than Jacob's. Guys, all of chapter 36 is telling you how big and grand Esau's family is. It starts out by saying, these are the generations of Esau. And then for 42 more verses, it goes on to share how awesome and how abundant Esau's family line was. And then Jacob's family line is only like six verses long. When things get the worst and the hardest is how Satan often wants to cause you to go into a drift. 
Guys, the biggest thing I've seen as a pastor for 12 years that causes people to go into a spiral out, drifts them out to the sea, the current brings them out, is that a circumstance happens in their life and they interpret it as God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me. If he would give me this or if he would have prevented this, then that would have shown that he loved me and that he cared about me. And the enemy will use a circumstance and interpret it in your heart as God doesn't love you, God doesn't care for you and push you out to sea. And that's exactly what happens for Jacob. But Jacob again and again is anchoring himself in God's strength. God, you're gonna take that circumstance and you're working for my good. You promise to be in the midst of it. And through Jacob's family line, through all of this heartache, eventually does come the hope that he needed. Through Jacob's family line comes a son, comes a son, comes a son, all the way to Jesus, the Messiah, that would die for every sin that he committed, that would give him the strength he needed. And that son would be born in Bethlehem where we see his wife be buried. And the moment of devastation and the place of devastation is the moment and the place of salvation. Rachel's buried in Bethlehem and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Guys, in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of devastation, God can bring hope, salvation, and joy for you. Guys, let's not get knocked off and go astray in Satan's schemes in your life. Trust in God's strength. So church, those are the five ways we can be anchored in and not drift out to sea. We've got to be anchored in God's word, God's love, godly repentance, God's promise, and God's strength when Satan schemes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Amen.